Heavenly Father, um, the greatest need of our soul right now, of every soul in this room, and really it is not an overstatement to say every soul in the world, is that you would come and meet with us. That through looking at your scriptures, your words, the story of Ruth, the things that you were doing in and through her life and the lives of those around her, that you would magnify your beauty so that our hearts would see and treasure you for the God that you are, that we would enjoy you, trust you, and that in our faith, in our trusting in you, that you would grant to us to love like only you can love, that you would give us your love for the people around us. I ask that you would commend that to our hearts today, Father. Remove any error from my mouth and magnify your name through the, through the understanding and the embracing of uh, the glories that we see in Scripture. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, like I said, we began our journey through the book of Ruth, um, first series of the year. Uh, and uh, the book of Ruth uh, is an Old Testament story set at one of the bleakest points in Israel's history. If you remember what we were talking about last week, it's uh, according to uh, the first uh, verse in the book, it was set during the time of the judges. Uh, and if you're at all familiar with this period, um, you know that for Israel, this was a tragic cycle of rebellion and disaster. Calamity after calamity after calamity during this period. And Ruth's story is this shining beacon of hope right smack in the middle of it. And we covered most of the first chapter last week. So this week what I want to do, God willing, is zero in on a specific part of this chapter. Part that we didn't cover fully last week. So the story, if you remember uh, from last week, began with a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech... Um, he, his wife, and his two sons leave Judah during a famine. And they travel all the way to the land of Moab where they will live. They sojourn in Moab. And his wife, her name is Naomi. She's a critical part to Ruth's story. But Naomi loses Elimelech, her husband, and her two sons before the fifth verse in this book. They're gone. And that's how this, the story begins, with this catastrophic loss that Naomi experiences. And last week we had a, a serious talk about the providence of God, how God, it, God's work in our lives isn't just there when things are going well. He's doing stuff even in the darkest of places. And we saw that although Naomi lost her husband, although she's lost her two sons, God hasn't forsaken her. God has given her her son's two Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And with them, he has, even though she can't see it right now, provided her with a hope that she really won't see till chapter 2. So next week we'll look at, at that, her seeing it. But this hope will change everything for her. And really, for God's people, it changes everything. We talked a little bit about that last week. I want to go into uh, verse 6 today. So in verse 6, God, it says, has visited the fields of Israel. He's given his people 
or he's visited the people of Israel by giving them food. And uh, Naomi hears this in the fields of Moab. And so she, she and uh, these two women set out at the beginning of this passage we're about to read to go back to Judah. God has blessed the land of Israel and given them food. The famine is over and they're going back. And what I want to do is I want to really hone in on the conversation, the dialogue that Naomi has with these two women. And I want to look at their interaction. And some of this is going to be recap at the beginning. Bear with me. Um, We really need to set the stage for the specific discussion between Naomi and Ruth, which will be the the kind of the keystone of what we're looking at today. So let's start with verse 6 and move through these uh, four uh, verses here. So it says here, chapter 1, Ruth, verse 6, Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had, gr- had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So early on, at some point early on, presumably, in their trek back to Judah... Naomi stops and she realizes what she is inviting these two women into. They don't have husbands. They don't have any provision for themselves. She can't provide for them. They have no hope. They're Moabite women, which means coming back to Judah is a risk. They're vulnerable to to exploitation. They're vulnerable to a variety of things because there's no way that she can provide for them. And Naomi... Uh, tells Orpah and Ruth, you should go back to your homes. You should go back to Moab. You should go back to your families and stay there. And she prays that God would provide them with a husband, some sort of provision. In other words, that they would go back to Moab and get married and that they would have, they'd have an opportunity to have a family, which is something they don't have anymore because their husbands are gone. And then she kisses them goodbye. But in their weeping, they refuse to go. They tell her, we're not going to go. We will not leave you, but we will go back with you to your people. So why do they say this? Why, why is, what is their thinking? Well, simplest explanation is the right one here. They love Naomi. They don't want to abandon Naomi. And Naomi, even in much of her prayer earlier, expresses this love that they have for her by saying, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and as you have dealt with me. They love Naomi. They don't want to leave her. And they're weeping here, which is interesting because the author never mentions them weeping in the first five verses over their husband's death. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. We don't know. But he does choose to mention it when Naomi asks them to leave. As if that blow 
was something they could not endure. They could not part with Naomi. And we see in the next few verses by Naomi's response that, that she loves them too. That's why she's asking them to go. Look at verse 11. It says this, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me that for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This passage is easily the saddest passage the most heart-wrenching passage in the entire book of Ruth. Picture it for, for a moment, if you can. Just try to conceive of it in your minds. Naomi has asked these two Moabite women to leave, not for her sake, not for her sake, for their own. Yet they refuse to leave her, and she is pleading with them, begging them to go. She's doing everything she can in her argument here to tell them, you need to go. Staying with me is not going to help you. And then she asks this question, will you go with me? In other words, why would you sacrifice your life, your future, any prospect of security and provision to come with me? And if there's any, any confusion at all for them about the risk that is involved, she clarifies it. She says, have I yet sons in my womb? that they may become your husbands. In other words, she can't prevent them from having a husbandless. And what that means at this point in history, in this time, in this place in the world, an impoverished future, potentially filled with exploitation and abuse. She even goes as far to say, if I should say I have hope and God gave me a husband and sons tonight, would you wait for them till they were grown? Why does she say, if I should say, I have hope. Why, why would you say that? The reason is because, if you remember last week, we talked about how Naomi's understanding of God's providence and his ordering of all things is actually right. It's consistent with Scripture. What she doesn't understand and what she's not getting right now in chapter 1 is God's provision for her personally through these two Moabite women. So when she says, if I should say I have hope, she's basically saying, I have no hope in this world. I have no hope in this world. And she is fighting so that she doesn't drag these two women into her own hopelessness. She doesn't want them to come with her into the downward spiral that she sees her life as being, which is why we have this agonizing line in verse 13, she says, Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord, Yahweh, has gone out against me. She, she says here, for your sake. She is, she is doing this for her. She doesn't want them to be brought into this exceeding bitterness that she's experiencing because of this tragedy that's happened to her. And she recognizes that if they stay with her, if they stay with her, it will ruin their lives. That's what she's seeing here. And so she says, leave me. And she is at least in part successful. Look at verse 14. It says, 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. So Orpah has had enough and she finally relents. She realizes, maybe connect some of the dots that Naomi's saying and saying, yeah, I need to go back to my family. And she leaves. And this is the last time we hear about her in the Bible ever. She never, ever is mentioned again. Orpah's story in scripture is over with her leaving Naomi here. And I think it's worth, a question, it's worth questioning this and asking why. If, you, if you've read the whole story of Ruth, you recognize that this part in the beginning is kind of just background. It almost feels like white noise. And so why is Orpah in the story at all? God wrote this story. God ordered the events and then inspired them into our Bible. Why? He could have, he could have written this without Orpah. He could have written this without the second brother so that there's not two brothers and two wives. Last week we said that in Scripture, God's sovereignty means that all things work according to the counsel of His will. That's Ephesians 1.11. What that means is that God is involved in all things somehow. Even if it's a bad thing, He's working it together for the good of those who love Him. And Orpah and her story are part of that category, all things. And so God could have told the story of Ruth without it being two brothers and two daughters-in-law. Why in his providence did he do this? I think the answer is this. Based on what we've just read, without Orpah, it is impossible to understand the depth of Ruth's love for Naomi. If Orpah isn't in this story, we miss just how sacrificial Ruth's love will be portrayed in the coming verses because Orpah really loved Naomi. She is fighting to stay with Naomi. She doesn't cop out the first chance she gets. She argues with her and wants to stay, which is well beyond what most people would have done. Yet eventually she relents and she leaves. But it says Ruth doesn't leave. She clings to Naomi. Orpah leaves, Ruth remains. I'm not going anywhere. And I believe the magnitude of Ruth's sacrificial love is obscured if we don't have Orpah in the story showing she went beyond what even most people wouldn't do. And in the next bit, verse 15, we're going to see how much further the author augments that reality of Ruth's sacrificial love. So let's look at 15 to 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Naomi's talking about Orpah. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then it says, when Naomi saw that 
she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So even after Orpah leaves, Naomi gives one last attempt, one time, one chance to deter Ruth, pointing to Orpah as she goes back to her people and tells her straight up, go, follow your sister-in-law. Now's your chance. And Ruth says, no, do not urge me to go with Orpah or to leave you. Don't do it. And then she delivers what has to be one of the most exalted statements of commitment to another human being in the entire Bible, if not all of human history. And we're going to look at that. That's not an over, overstatement. It is stunning what she says. So she begins by saying this, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, I, I'm not leaving you. It doesn't matter where you go, Naomi. It does not matter. I will be with you and I will stay with you always. Your people shall become my people and your God shall be my God. So this isn't simply a commitment at friendship. This isn't a, 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 a relationship of, I'm going to stick with you, you know, when it works out for me. She's giving up everything. She's saying, I will abandon my life, my people, the people of Moab, my God, whose name is Chemosh. I will abandon him and I will take on, Naomi, all that you are. I'll take that on. Your people, your God. And there's actually a, a really tragic and ironic distinction between Ruth and her reaction to Naomi and the people of Israel right now during the time of the judges. Remember last week, much of Israel had abandoned their God, Yahweh. They had abandoned him and they had embraced all the gods of the Canaanites. But amazingly, this Moabite woman, this young girl, is doing the exact opposite. She is departing from and abandoning all of her gods, and she is embracing Yahweh. And she's effectively, think about this. I mean, I don't know if there's any kind of proxy that you've ever experienced or seen in your life. She is abandoning her people, her culture, and her life. She doesn't know if she's going to ever see her family again. Probably not. And she's doing that because something in Naomi has shown her the, the, the joy and the beauty of this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And so her statement here really kind of acts as an indictment against the people of Israel during the time of the judges. And then she says one final thing that silences Naomi for the rest of this passage. And this is going to be our, our focal point for our time, the rest of our time together today. She says, where you die, Naomi, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, Naomi's God, do so to me more and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Have you ever heard someone talk like that? Have you ever, have you ever said that? I, I know some of us have said, till death do us part. And that's profound. If you're married, you say that. We're going to die at death. Um, but that's not what she says here. Listen to what she says. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Meaning, I'm not going to leave your side even when you're dying. And when you're dead and buried, 
I will be buried next to you, Naomi. That's where I'm going to be. Even when we are dead, we will be together. I promise you. She's not going to leave her. Even in death. Even in death. And then she brings really what, what is a curse down upon her own head. She says, if I break this promise, I want God to do this to me. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything, any single thing but death parts me from you, Naomi, which is stunning to say. What kind of woman is this? Think about what she's saying here. If I leave you, Naomi, if I ever leave you, may Yahweh, our God, now destroy me. That's what do so to me and and more means. That's how serious she is. So, so Ruth is leaving her family, her country, her gods, and she is clinging to Naomi. They use that word in verse, uh, what is it, 14. Um, in Hebrew, that word clung actually is debak. It means uh, to cleave or to draw close to, to cling to. And it is the language of a covenant. It is the language that's used in a covenant. A covenant is a, a promise between two people or two peoples. And well, here's an example. Genesis 2, we have this scene, the first wedding in human history, first marriage in human history, Adam and Eve. And uh, we have God bringing the bride out. It says God brought Eve out to show Adam, like a proud father in a wedding, and to give her to Adam in the covenant of marriage. And Moses, the author of Genesis, explains in verse 24 of chapter 2 exactly what we're seeing. He says, And man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the Hebrew word there for hold fast is the bach. It's the covenant word. And it's the same word that we have in Ruth 1 talking about Ruth's commitment to Naomi. It is a covenant never to leave her. In this book, as we go through Ruth in the next few weeks, you'll see this covenant vividly portrayed. It is beautiful. But think about it for a second. In this act of clinging, we talked about it a few times. I want to drill down a little bit into it. In this act of her committing to Naomi... Ruth loses everything in her life. Everything she's known in Moab, her people, her family, her faith, they're gone. And despite Naomi pleading with Ruth to go back, she is giving her life over to Naomi. Wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. And what we're seeing here is an extraordinary act of sacrificial love. That's what we're seeing here. No one in their right mind looks at this transaction, looks at what Ruth is saying to Naomi and says, that's dumb. That's foolish. No sensible human would look at Ruth's sacrificial act of love and walk away thinking that she made a, a foolish mistake. There's something about what she's doing here that no matter who you would ask, they would say, that's noble. That's beautiful. 
everyone recognizes that aspect of this to some degree, that to sacrifice oneself for another is an honorable and noble and worthy thing to do. And that's exactly, precisely what Ruth is doing here. Some would call what she's doing the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice. She's giving her life. There isn't a higher thing that you can give. She's committed to stay with her. She is, in her love for Naomi, laying down her life. And for us, for Christians, this idea, this concept of of sacrificial love isn't an unfamiliar concept. It shouldn't be. John 15, 13, for example, says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, who's saying that? You guys know? Jesus, a descendant of Ruth. And no one's going to disagree with Jesus here because he's Jesus, for, for one. But number two, everyone recognizes that sacrificially laying down one's life is the greatest of all acts of love. There's nothing greater than this. And so how does Ruth do this? How does she have this conversation with Naomi and promise this and then execute on it? actually do it, stay with her. And I think it's easy for us to admit that although it's noble, although this kind of love is beautiful and we recognize it universally as being something to be cherished and loved, it's rare. And in some situations, it's almost entirely absent, like from culture, from humanity. If you remember last week, we brought this up uh, a few times already today, um, the book of Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges. And in the time of Judges, Israel was abandoning God repeatedly. And the last verse of the book of the Judges kind of sums up in a very stunning way the entire course of life for the people of Israel in that time frame. It says in those days, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And That's not an exception to the rule. That's really an anthem of humanity. It is easier for us, naturally, to appeal to our own desires than to sacrifice our lives for the sake of another person. That's easier. And yet we have Ruth in this story, so remarkably different from the people in Israel during this time. And yet, she's also different from much of humanity. And if we're willing to be honest and self-diagnose, I think we can ask ourselves some really tough questions like, are we all that different from the people of Israel? Is it for us easier to appeal to our own desires? Or let me ask you this, how, how often do we individually pursue personal comfort above sacrificial love? How often are we, are we driven almost naturally towards self-preservation over self-sacrifice, especially in America and in the West in general? And the questions we, would ask, we should ask really when we look at, at Ruth's example here is, are we giving our time and our energy and our money for the sake of the kingdom? Do we do that? Are we opening our homes to those in our lives who don't know God's love? Are we, are we loving 
and caring for those around us who are actually in like desperate need? Do we find ourselves doing that? Are we, are we echoing what Ruth did in this passage? And do we love those who, in God's providence, He's brought them close to us? They're not there by accident. Are we loving those He's put in our lives? And if you're anything like me, when I conduct a diagnostic like this on my own life, I look at the book of Ruth and I say, I want to be like Ruth. I want to be like her. I want to love like her. I want to be willing to give up my life for the sake of others. I want to love others like she loves Naomi, not not out of guilt. Ruth wasn't driven by guilt. She wasn't driven by a moral obligation. She had not, she owed Naomi nothing, but she had a deep, powerful love for her that compelled her to say and do what she did. So how in the world do we get there? How in the world do we as Christians, thousands of years later, get to love like Ruth did? Well, to answer that, we have to look at why it was that Ruth was able to love this way. Keep in mind, Ruth was a Moabite, and the, Moab, the Moabites had several gods. One of their gods was, like I mentioned earlier, Chemosh, which is mentioned in Numbers 21. And we know that she tells Naomi, your God will be my God. So somehow she's able to let go of Chemosh and all the Moabite gods and say, I want Yahweh. I want your God. And what that tells us is that in the 10 years or so that she was with Naomi and this family, that she came to know this God. Naomi's God. She came to see him and know him as so superior from her former gods in Moab that she could give them all up in an instant when it came to pursuing with Naomi whatever future Naomi had, which is stunning on several levels, one of which is that Naomi's told her repeatedly that Yahweh, my God, isn't like Chemosh. He's not a small little thing. He's sovereign over everything, which means that he could have stopped your husband from dying, but he didn't. That came from the hand of God somehow in his providence. In other words, Ruth's life has been painfully dismantled by God's providence, yet she's seen enough of who he is to know, that's my God. I will go with Yahweh. And in chapter 1, this is hinted at and pointed to, but in chapter 2, it is made explicit. We're going to jump ahead and get a little peek at verses 11 through 12. Someone says this to Ruth. Listen to what this person says to Ruth. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you have done, Ruth, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So think about this statement. The man is talking about Ruth, and he's saying that there's some 
some profound connection between her commitment to Naomi, her sacrificial love for Naomi, and this having taken refuge under the wings of God. Why? Why is there a connection? Why, why that image, under the wings of God? This picture, the wings of God and taking refuge under them. In fact, David, you, you, you uh, read from, was Psalm 63, my favorite psalm. And it says, uh, under the wings of God, I will sing for joy. And uh, I think it's an interesting and compelling visual because we immediately get this picture of God being this majestic, powerful bird and us being these little small chicks underneath the wing, completely reliant on God. And we're going to explore that, this passage actually, closely next Sunday. But for the sake of today, it means this, that somehow over the 10 years that Ruth was with this family, she came to know Naomi's God and love him. And she came to rely on him for protection, for provision, such that when she was faced with the decision to go with the God of Moab or to go with the God of Israel, Yahweh, she chose Yahweh and she was willing to sacrifice everything that was hers to make that choice, which is why she can say to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. I'm not going anywhere. I've seen your God. I want in with you and him. I want that path. Now at this point, there's an important distinction we we need to make here because some of you might be saying, well, Jeremy, you're saying Ruth trusted God. That's why she's able to sacrificially love. Are you suggesting that an unbeliever who doesn't know God can't love sacrificially? and can't give sacrificially of their time, their energy? Is that what you're suggesting? Like an unbeliever can't run into a building, save someone's life, risking their own, or someone can't, an unbeliever can't give an extraordinary amount of money that is a sacrificial gift. Are you saying that because they don't trust God like Ruth does, then it's not really love? It's not really sacrificial love? I think the answer to that question is it may very well be sacrificial and it may very well be loving, but it's not the same kind of sacrificial love that Ruth expresses. And ultimately, it will not have the same lasting effect that Ruth's love has for Naomi because it is rooted in God. The main difference between Ruth's faith in God working out as love, sacrificial love for somebody else, and an unbeliever giving their time, giving their energy, giving of themselves for somebody else, is that Ruth is in complete and total reliance on God to love. He is all she has to love this way. And the unbeliever is not relying on God at all. In fact, um, though they can do nothing without him, because he sustains the universe and every action they have, They don't acknowledge him. They don't love him. They don't trust him. They are not relying on him. And that kind of love, though it may be sacrificial, is a denial of the source of their very ability to love. And therefore, it means it's going to always be poisoned by a self-righteousness or an ulterior motive 
or a weakness that makes it distinctively different than Ruth's love because it is merely human love, fallen human love. And a, a human that does not acknowledge his creator is, is kind of like, this might not be a great analogy, but it's kind of like a child who wants to graciously give to their friends ice cream so they steal from their parents to give it and they claim that it was their own. It may be a loving gift to sacrificially give of time, energy, love, but when it denies the common grace that has made it impossible, it becomes broken. And this really brings us to the answer to our original question. Ruth's love is extraordinary. There's no denying that. It is an astonishing love. So how do we love like that? How, do we, how does our faith in God, our taking refuge under the wings of God, lead and work itself out to a kind of love that we see in Ruth? Well, the apostle of love, the apostle John, helps us in his first letter. Look at 1 John 4, 7. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, you probably you're like me, grew up in the church, have heard this verse probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But when we hear stuff hundreds of times, we are in danger of missing what it's actually saying. Um, John is saying here, Christians should love one another because their love originates from God. The kind of love that someone who has faith in God, like Ruth, and has been born of God, knows God, is the kind of love that originates from God himself. It isn't self-originating. It isn't a fabrication or a human invention. The kind of love that John is referring to here, that Ruth is expressing here, is God's own love. It's his love. Romans 5.5 5 goes even further to say that God has poured his love into our hearts, which means that through faith, his love so saturates our souls that is expressed in us and through us for others. It is a love that has a divine source. It's not a human invention, which is an astonishing in and of itself. But even more than that, it explains to us why Ruth is able to sacrifice so much, why she's able to give up everything for Naomi. She can abandon all of Moab, her family, her gods, her past, because her love isn't merely human love. It's not human love alone. It is the very love of God for Naomi expressed through Ruth. God is loving Naomi when Ruth promises never to leave her. So when you trust God, Christian, when your faith is in him, this means that you have literally no limit to the sacrifice you can make for others because the almighty God of the universe is your source of strength, your source of energy, your source of, source of time, your source of joy. He provides all of that such that any sacrifice for the Christian is entirely possible. It's not out of the question because he's got you, you are his. You belong to him and his love has filled your hearts. 
Ruth is not morally better than any of the Israelites. In and of her own flesh, she's not morally better than any of the Israelites that are rebelling against God. She is not more spiritually attuned or inclined to God. She has simply trusted in God for everything. And if God is your refuge, if he is the ultimate source of every provision and every protection that you have in your life, then there is no limit to what you can give for the sake of the kingdom. Because he has you. You're his. It is a limitless, omnipotent love that is being expressed by God through Ruth for Naomi. And it is a love capable of making extraordinary sacrifices. And the reason why we and Ruth, sinners though we may be, in rebellion against God, though we, we may act, have access to this kind of love is because a thousand years after Ruth and Naomi's story, something remarkable happens. One of Ruth's descendants will be called the son of the Most High God. And when God's son enters the world and when he heads to the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who will have faith in him, everyone who will trust him and, and, and be underneath the refuge of his wings, when he does that, the greatest sacrifice in history is made. And here's why. Romans 8.32 paints a, a vivid picture of the cost incurred for this sacrifice. It says, He, that is God, did not, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know what that means? <laughs> it means that though Ruth's sacrifice is incredible, though it is worthy of praise, though, though, it, though it is beautiful and glorious to look at, to emulate, to adore, it is not the ultimate sacrifice. It isn't. It isn't the greatest sacrifice. Underneath every sacrificial act of love made by someone who trusts in God, including Ruth, is one sacrifice. And that is the sacrifice that God made of his son for us to ransom us from our sin. That's the ultimate sacrifice. That's the foundation upon which every act of Christian love can exist. His love for us. And we have access to that love, that infinite, unparalleled love, because God bought it for us on the cross with his own son. See, there's Romans 8.32 expresses a reality that we will not understand until eternity. And even then, it will take eternity for us to understand it. There is nothing like Jesus in the universe. He alone is the greatest reality, the most precious thing in all existence is Jesus Christ. And the father looks at his son in this verse and sees all of his beauty, all of his glory, all of his worth. And in order to love us sacrificially, gives his son up the most valuable thing to him in the world. His own son and the greatest treasure of the universe, Jesus, according to this verse, is given up. It is inconceivable the level of sacrifice that was made by God here. 
And the whole point of this verse is that if God is willing to do that, if he is able to do that, how will he not also with Jesus give us all things? And that is how Ruth was able to love Naomi that way. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Jesus Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, not just as an example. Not just as, it is an example. Not just as an example. He loved us on the cross and he purchased for us everything we will need to sacrificially give of our time and our energy and our lives. Therefore, we will love because he first loved us. Without him, there would be no love. Not in the, not in the Christian sense. And our faith in God is a conduit through which God's love is poured out for us. So get this. This is where kind of the rubber hits the road for us. Um, you are right now in certain people's lives so that they can experience the love of God. Through you, through your family. That's why you're there, just like Ruth. And because the love of God is an infinite wellspring, there is no limit to the time or energy or, or sweat or blood that that love could cost. And if it sounds impossible to you, then you're hearing me correctly. Because with man, it is po- impossible. But with God, all things are possible, including giving your life in this way. Loving people, putting your own preferences, your own desires to the side and saying, you need to experience the love of God. And the reason I'm here right now is so that you experience it. Telling a person that. In a few moments, we're going to be worshiping uh, and we'll be celebrating and worshiping through communion And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust him, if you've taken refuge under his wings, you are invited to participate and to receive the elements which signify his sacrifice for us. The ultimate sacrifice, the foundation on which any good from us will arise. And as you receive those those elements, recognize in whatever way you're able to, the cost that God incurred when he gave his son up for us. And then if I could leave you with just one admonition and one encouragement, it would be, it would be this. And I, and I say this to you in love because I love you. And I say this to myself. I'm preaching to myself mainly here. God did not love us, me and you, so that his love would terminate on us and just stay there. He didn't love us in such a radical way so that when his love finally reaches our lives, it stops and it never is expressed in any conceivable way to other people. He didn't love us like that. He desires, just like how his love reached you and didn't stop until it got to you, he desires to love people in our lives through us. It's his love. So Kingsgate, out there. Risen hope is God's instrument of loving them. Think about that. Like, that is, that is a wildly glorious thing to be a part of, but th- just conceive about it. If, 
if we don't do it, then his love is not being expressed to them. He's not just going to and them feel loved. He has his church, his people, his body in this world so that we would glorify him through sacrificial love by trusting in him and taking refuge in him. And I promise you this, I can promise you this, if you believe in him, if you trust him, if you take refuge under his wings, every single ounce of strength you will ever need to love someone sacrificially will be given to you. I promise. I promise. That is not an empty promise. That will happen. And so trust him. Take refuge in his wings. Let's pray. Father, it is a beautiful thing to look at a story in your book and to recognize how you moved powerfully to love Naomi in the middle of a catastrophe, to provide hope in a hopeless situation by loving Naomi through Ruth. It's a beautiful thing for us to look at that, Father, but oh, how do I want personally and would love for, for my, my friends here to, to desire and long for to be like Ruth, to so be overwhelmed by the magnitude of who you are and be so confident in your ability to provide for us and to protect us and to love us and care for us and to give anything that we need that we are willing to give up everything so that people can see your love. If there's one thing that Jesus coming to the earth should show us and dying on a cross and serving by giving his life as a ransom for many, it is this. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here for ourselves. We've been redeemed by God and we treasure him and therefore we can be used by God to express a love that otherwise would not be experienced at all by people if it's not through us, Father. So please give us the courage, the boldness, give us the desire to work our schedules, work our lives, work the busyness of our lives into meaningful, actualized, glorious acts of your love through us. We ask this trusting in you alone, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.